this is the season of Epiphany. And um, Epiphany is really a, a time in which we recognize God's revelation uh, to all of us. Ostensibly, in Epiphany itself, we always read about the wise men because of the fact that God revealed himself not just to uh, uh, the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. And, you know, the first fruits of that were the wise men themselves. But through the readings of Epiphany, you know, uh, especially the book of Revelation is looked at because the truth of the matter is that the only way we can know God is if God chooses to reveal himself to us. You know, it's beyond human ability to think our way to God, to try and imagine who God is. All our human attempts largely are just basically uh, taking our own wish, wishes of who God would be and then this, you know, uh, uh, writing it larger. And, and if you look at human attempts to uh, understand God, oftentimes they're just God made in our image, but in a bigger way. But God ultimately has made us in His image. And so there is some understanding of God, but you, we can't really fully know God until God reveals Himself to us. And that's where we are when we look at this gospel story, the story of the wedding in Cana in Galilee. It's the uh, place in which, as, as we went through the reading, the first time Jesus uh, um, um, demonstrated His miracle working power. What... Uh, the Gospel of John calls signs. And ultimately, you know, it reveals the first light of who Jesus truly is. So let's, uh, without further ado and introduction, get into the text itself and uh, consider some of the lessons contained therein. In verse 1, it begins, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with me? What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. You know, and um, as you pick it up, you see that it's, it's a curious thing that it says there on the third day, you know, because John is not like um, um, Luke very concerned about the chronological account uh, of things. You know, John, in fact, in some ways, you, some of his events sort of jump all over the place because he has, uh, uh, you know, they, when they wrote, they didn't write as historians do today, trying to give you an orderly account other than Luke. Uh, the other Gospels basically are trying to put forward a, an understanding of who Jesus is, and that was certainly John's case. But in this case, he says the third day, and it was a bit puzzling until I really delved into it. And it's pointed out by D.A. Carson uh, in his commentary how this third day, basically if you uh, mark the days from the uh, chapter 1, verse 19, when John the Baptist arrives on the scene. And, you know, slowly the revelation of, of Jesus, and he points to Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world, Right? And uh, the disciples of John suddenly now begin to follow Jesus. As you mark the days, this event on the third day is basically seven days after that began. And Carson believes, you know, it's, it's a pointing to the fact that when Jesus came, his purpose was to usher in the new creation. Right? We know that uh, creation had fallen, and God had to have a, a plan of redemption, of salvation, 
to re, uh, uh, renew all of creation that had fallen, right? And, and, and gone beyond what God had designed. And this is a mark of uh, the start of that new creation, in a sense, the beginning of his ministry. You know, the Bible tells us in uh, uh, 2 Corinthians, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. But as it is, it's an interesting uh, place to be because we see here the story of how wine ran out at a, a, a wedding celebration. Uh, some um, commentators, you know, sort of said, wondering out loud, you know, is it because Jesus and the disciples turned up? Did they get crashed? You know, the host didn't really expect that many people to appear and then uh, ran out of wine. Uh, I'm not sure that's necessarily the case. But, you know, if you stop and you think about the circumstance, so what if the wine ran out? <laughs> yeah, the uh, host, would, who would be the bridegroom, very paise lah. You know, in our context, wine running out is not so big a deal as if food runs out, right? If you invite people to the wedding banquet and then you have to tell the guests, sorry, uh, not enough food. <laughs> you know, you have to go home hungry. You know, if we put ourselves in our shoes, we can understand it's great embarrassment. But, you know, compared to healing a, a, a blind man or helping a lame man walk again or casting out a demon... In the grand scheme of things, this seems like a rather frivolous sort of place to begin your miracle-working ministry. And yet, we see that that is exactly what happens. And in fact, you see, Jesus asked the question, right, when uh, 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 Mary pointed out, what does this have to do with me? Basically, he's saying, uh, um, you know, dear woman in NIV says, why do you involve me? Right? Not my business, not your business. Why why you want to worry? Now, some commentators think that maybe because Mary was actually put in charge of uh, running the thing, it may have been a relative that was getting married. We don't have all those details and we can speculate based on things. But, you know, I laugh when I read this account because Mary is like a typical mother, right? You notice Mary didn't actually make any request of Jesus. All she said to him was, the wine has run out. Right? And mothers, sometimes they deal in innuendo. They expect you to pick up the signals and, and, and you know, don't, don't even say anything. And then he's objecting to saying, you know, what's this got to do with me? And she ignores his objections and says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. <laughs> right? And, and, and you look at it and you can see this is a very human uh, circumstance and situation. But the story continues in verse 6. That there were six stone uh, water jars that were all, always used for Jewish uh, rites of purification. Now, if you read in other parts of the gospel, you know that they are told that they must purify themselves before they sit down to eat. It wasn't a, a hygiene issue, it was a, a ritual law issue, right? And, and so these jars were meant for that, holding 20 or 30 gallons. Uh, and Jesus said to the servants, fill these jars with water. Then once they were filled to the brim, he said, now, Draw from there and serve the water to the master of the feast. Now, if you would stop and you think about it, okay, it seems uh, amazing enough. I'm actually blown away by these servants, right? Because in Jesus' day, they did not drink water. I mean, in our day also, we sort of understand this, right? Any of you gone to Bali, right? You go to Bali, they always want you, don't drink the water, Right? Get bottled water. Never drink water from the tap. Why? Otherwise, you cannot have Bali belly. 
<laughs> right? And, 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 and because you know, the water is untreated. And so for them to serve water, it's like you're asking for trouble, right? You're going to ask people to drink water, and yet they went about doing it. That's part of the reason why some people think uh, you know, Mary must have been in charge, you know, that they would listen to her uh, and, and do what um, Jesus told them to do. But notice, of course, uh, what happens now. These water jars are not these small jars that we see uh, uh, depicted by Murillo, uh, this artist, Renaissance artist, but they were large water jars, 20 to 30 gallons for us who work in metric. Uh, it's actually hard to convert sometimes. It's 75 to 115 litres per jar. So these are huge containers, all right? And this becomes relevant later as I look at it. But, you know, it, it, it concludes, right, with uh, how the master drinks of this, uh, uh, what is wine. Servants knew what had happened. And his remark is, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, and in the Greek, basically it says, when people are totally inebriated, <laughs> they've drunk their fill and they are, uh, you know, they are, they are marble already, they are, they are drunk. <laughs> then you serve uh, the, the poor wine. And that makes a lot of sense, isn't it? Those of you who drink alcohol, oh, you take the first sip of wine, it's very nice. Oh, wow, this is so smooth, right? <laughs> you, you talk about it. And, and after you finish one and a half bottles, it doesn't matter what you drink, you actually you don't taste anything anymore. <laughs> You're not fully there, your senses are not fully alert. And that was certainly what was happening. And instead, you know, as in the NIV, it says, you have saved the best till now. After everything is over and, it, you know, when God does a miracle, He doesn't do it half past six. Right? He doesn't give you just wine, He gives you the best wine. And that's certainly what we see and we read in this case. But it ends, uh, this passage we are looking at ends in this way. This, the first of His signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested His glory. And His disciples believed in Him. John, in his gospel, talked about all the miracles using this term, signs. And this is what, you know, why Jesus did miraculous works. Ultimately, he was pointing to something else. That's what a sign is, isn't it? Uh, going back to Toronto after having been away almost 10 years, you know, roads were familiar and you could more or less get around and, you know, the GPS on your phone helps but I was very happy that it's well signposted, right? Because the signs, because you know GPS, you can't always rely on, you know, they've got directions sometimes that are a little bit weird, but you look at the signs and it points you there. But signs are only useful in that it points to the thing that is you are searching or seeking or hoping to get to. Isn't that right? Nobody sees a sign you know, uh, outside there's a sign that says, Church of the Good Shepherd. Nobody stands down there and says, Oh, wow, what a wonderful church. <laughs> the sign points to something beyond itself. And that's true of uh, God's miraculous works. The purpose was to point to something else, to reveal something else. And, you know, this is really uh, what uh, the Gospel of John is about. Right at the end of uh, uh, the book, 
he uh, puts his thesis statement now. They obviously wrote things differently. Now we write thesis statements has to be right up front, right? <laughs> you have to tell the reader what you're going to tell this whole book is about or this whole paper is about. But in, in uh, John's Gospel, it's right at the end, chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. In other words, the signs were to point us to Jesus and who He is. But in understanding who Jesus is, we then understand who God is. Right? Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. The only way we know who God is, is through Jesus Christ. But stop and think about it for a moment. This is a very strange place for you know, God to begin His revelation of who He is, isn't it? This is the start, in a sense, of His public ministry. You know, up to this point of time, it's kind of amazing because, you know, Mary... I, I, to me, it speaks a little bit about Jesus' character because he hadn't done anything yet. Uh, there were no miraculous works up to this point of time. Why did Mary say, you know, listen to him? It must have been because he was the oldest son, very responsible. He was always able to come up with solutions. And in her mind, it probably would have been a, 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 some kind of smart solution. She didn't expect a, a miracle to take place. But if you stop and you think about it, right? Why would God choose to show up in a wedding? Over a crisis of not enough wine, <laughs> which seems minuscule on the grand scheme of things, right? First impressions are important, aren't they? Because why? First impressions last. Stop and think about this. I told you six large water jars. If they are between 75 and 115 litres, I did the math, you know, you take the difference, huh? I mean, split the difference, and right in the centre, it's 95 litres per jar. Times six equals 570 litres. Now, though you and I, when we drink wine, wine is only uh, 0.7 litres, right? 700 ml. 570 litres equals 815 bottles of wine. Now, if you've ever been at a wedding and you've drunk until you, uh, uh, um, you, 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 you've consumed so much alcohol until you're drunk, can you go ahead and consume some more? You know, and it, it seems, it, it blows the mind because, you know, talk about a party. This was a miracle of drunkenness, <laughs> if I may say. Isn't it? That's what Jesus essentially did. And I think... It blows the mind because all of us, the Jews back then, and certainly us today, we tend to have this image of God, that God is this cosmic killjoy, right? That if you want to be a religious, spiritual person, you need to be uh, um, baptized in lemon juice. <laughs> you know, put on a, a serious disposition and not have too much fun. As if fun is antithetical antithetical to uh, uh, a godliness or spirituality. And yet, you know, this was the way God chose to first reveal Himself in Jesus Christ, to uh, provide 
this wine. In fact, Scripture tells us this, right? In 1 Timothy 6, 17, As for the rich at this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Why? Because God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Pursuing godliness, pursuing God, does not mean joy is squeezed out of life. In fact, later on in John's Gospel, Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and have it in abundance. Have it abundantly. That we are, you know, God's purpose is not to, to kill our joy, but to give us the fullness of joy. To help us to enjoy life. And He gives us so much to enjoy. You see, the problem is this. The problem is when we make good things into ultimate things, those things become our idols and we end up worshipping them. That's precisely the warning Paul is making to Timothy. He says, the rich in this present age, they are haughty because they set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, i.e. they make the wealth their ultimate goal and it becomes their God. So it's not the problem of wealth. It's not the problem of enjoyment. It's not the problem of leisure. It's not the problem of all things which are good. It's when we make good things ultimate things, then they destroy us. What is meant to be a good servant is actually a very terrible master. That the things that we have in life are meant to serve us and to help us in our work, uh, uh, living and, and enjoyment and, and our relationships. But when they become our ultimate obsession, they are terrible masters because they will eat us up. If we worship anything other than God Himself. You know, that's why Jesus also said, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. You understand the principle that's at work here? See, ultimately, I believe in this miracle, what we learn is this, that God actually meets us in the everyday, in our ordinary, normal life. There's a book uh, uh, which came out some years ago by a, a lady named Tish Harrison Warren. She's an Anglican priest. I've met her before uh, when I was in the States, an acquaintance. And uh, she wrote a book which is a wonderful book to get a hold of and read. It's very easy to read. It's, it's entitled The Liturgy of the Ordinary. And she writes it in a way that's very um, accessible, but pointing out how our ordinary everyday life, and, and the, the chapters are laid out starting with the waking up in the day and ending with just preparing to go to sleep, and how every activity in the day is an opportunity for us to meet with God. That it is a liturgy of worship, as it were. That even, uh, um, you know, there's one chapter which talks about having um, um, family disagreements, a disagreement with the spouse. That even in that, God can meet us there. And, and in it, uh, in her first chapter itself, she's uh, uh, talking about a, a quote which she came across by Annie Dillard who said that how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. And she interprets it this way. She says, today is the proving ground of what I believe and of whom I worship. How I live my daily life ultimately speaks of what I truly believe and where I really put my trust and my hope 
and my worship. How I spend this ordinary day in Christ is how I will spend my Christian life. And I'm not talking just about this day, because this day we set aside, right? Sunday, the Sabbath, we set aside for God. But, you know, she's talking about a Monday to Friday world. And she's trying to come against this idea that, you know, oftentimes we divide the sacred from the secular. We think spiritual enterprise is what we do when we gather in a place like this and we lift up our hands in worship or we come to receive Holy Communion or we sit and we hear the Word of God preached. But nothing could be further from the truth because all our lives are actually ultimately a spiritual endeavor. All our lives are meant to be an act of worship. I mean, that's basically what uh, uh, Paul said, right, in Romans 12, verse 1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, I like Eugene Peterson's uh, paraphrase of this verse in the message. He reads this way. Uh, he, he makes it very accessible. He says, so here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life. Your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life. And place it before God as an offering. Embracing what He does for you is the best thing you can do for Him. That our spiritual walk is not just what happens on one day of the week, but it happens every single day. Every single activity is an offering to God. Every single activity can and should be worship unto the Lord. And when we begin to see life in that way, and we see that in ordinary life, God shows up in our everyday activities, including, you know, a wedding. This is my daughter's wedding, so I use the photo. <laughs> no copyright. Um, you know, it's, it's important for us to see that God is present in all areas of our life. And He wants to be there. We are not to compartmentalize Him or to shut Him out. It's interesting that, you know, this uh, um, uh, wedding was where God first chose to show up. But if you look throughout Scripture, you realize that the metaphor of the wedding is uh, uh, rampant throughout his revelation of himself. In the Old Testament, he talked about Israel as his bride. And he, he used the illustration of how she had been unfaithful and adulterous, right? And prophets even uh, had to show, by, by, by entering into an adulterous relationship, to show how grievous it is to God when we depart from him in our relationship and our walk. But it continues on into the New Testament, not just in this account in the Gospels. Later on in the epistles, Paul, in his epistle, his letter to the Ephesians chapter 5, right? You remember? A passage which we often preach in weddings. He points out, you know, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then he says, this is a holy mystery. How marriage reflects the relationship God has with His people, that Christ has with the church. It's no wonder one of Satan's 
most uh, um, devious schemes is to find ways to break up marriages, to destroy what God had intended and, and God had ordained in marriage between one man and one woman. That these things have come in to try and, you know, uh, uh, if he can mar the, 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 the understanding of our relationship with God, he would do all he can to do it. And which is why as a church we hold it as important, not that everyone must be married, okay? I'm not saying that marriage is the uh, highest state of human existence. But what I'm saying, those of us who are married and have that privilege and that God has called us into marriage, God uses that as a symbol of His relationship with us. That's why in the book of Revelation that was read earlier by Shalene, Right? He talks about how in, in, in the culmination of things, it's the marriage feast of the Lamb, where we are ultimately, finally, fully uh, uh, um, brought into union with God, that we will be His people and He will be our God, and that we no more separation and sin is done away with. As I said, our... Um, theme for this year is to step up and to step out. But there's also a theme verse for us to think about and to reflect on through the year. And it's found in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That our walk needs to be in alignment with how God has designed us how God has redeemed us and has called us and brought us out. You know, I pointed out at the earlier that how this first miracle was a sign and it points to something ultimate. And if you read through the Gospels, you realize the, the, the ultimate sign is a sign that comes at the very end of the, each and every Gospel, right? Where Jesus ultimately went to the cross on our behalf. And He gave His life for us because, you know, the Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the only way we could be restored into right relationship with Him is through the blood that Jesus shed on the cross for us, paying the price for our sins. But not only did He take our sins upon Himself, He then transferred His righteousness to us. And it's that... In that way, we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That as we are called righteous, now we are called to live lives of righteousness, lives of godliness, lives in which, you know, it's not to kill our joy, but to find our fullest joy and acknowledging how we were designed and what we were made for. And when we begin to live it out in light of what He has done for us, that is new creation taking place. That's what the resurrection ultimately means. Why the uh, uh, um, Apostle Paul tells us that the power of the resurrection is at work in each and every one of us who believe. And that is what we look to and we look for. So as we continue into this new year of 2024, you know, whether you count your new year from the Ang Mo New Year or you want to count from the Chinese New Year, the year of the dragon coming up soon. <laughs> Whatever it is, you know, I hope we walk into our destiny 
and begin to understand who we are and who God has called us to be. And that ultimately, you know, it's the fact, how, how, how can we live a, a trusting walk with Him? Now, the, the servants, probably because they're conditioned to obey the person in charge, they obeyed Jesus. But for us, the reason we can trust and obey Him is because we know He has our best interests at heart. He's not out to kill our joy, but to give us the fullness of joy. What He calls us to, He does because He really has our... Uh, 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 we are, in a sense, beloved by Him. And it's because He loves us that He tells us what we ought to do and how we ought to live. So often we think we know better, but in reality, you know, who knows better than the one who designed us and who created us? So I pray that, you know, this would be a freeing word for you. This would be a word which encourages you to really, in this year of 2024, find ways in which, you know, you need to step up. <laughs> Not take cover. A lot of us tend to want to do that and, and hide. And I could have done that when Bishop spoke to me. I, uh, you know, he was giving me a choice, but uh, I was clear as, as I discussed with my wife that this was something the Lord was asking me to take on as an assignment. And so I would cover your prayers but also, you know, I would say to you, when the assignment comes and God calls you into something, be willing to step up and be willing to step out in faith. Amen? Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word because it is truly a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Thank you for this account of what happened in that wedding in an obscure town in the region of Galilee. But Lord, it's so powerfully relevant to us, showing us how, Lord, you truly love us, not just in big ways and in ways of uh, where we face major crises in our life, but in even uh, uh, the th obstacles or the difficulties we go through which on the, in the grand scheme of things may not seem so important. Yet, Lord, your love for us knows no bounds and knows no limits. And I pray that as we continue to learn about that love, as we continue to experience that love, as we continue to um, enjoy that love, may we learn to live the abundant life you have called us to. In faith, in trust, and in obedience. These things we ask and pray in your Son's most precious name. Amen.